Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast, the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network, where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker come first. Now, presented by LIUNA, Laborers International Union of North America, here's your host, Ed Flash Ferens. Pensions earned, pensions saved. The woman behind the Butch Lewis Act. And the states that repealed prevailing wage laws. Why it was a terrible idea for workers. Welcome to the Thursday, March 2nd edition of America's Workforce, where we are available on at least six platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, and Stitcher. Rita Lewis is going to be our first guest on the show today. And if that name rings a bell, well, there's good reason for it because she picked up the ball and ran with it. And when I'm talking about picking up the ball, we're talking about pensions being restored for millions of people in this country. Let me take you back to a time Going back to uh, 2007, 2008, 2009, what happened in this country? We pretty much financial collapse. I mean, it was bad. It started with a housing crisis, and a lot of companies went out of business, and a lot of pension funds were in big trouble. There was an opportunity in 2014 to save those pensions, but they essentially kicked the can down the road. Here comes Butch Lewis, longtime Teamster who was looking at a 60-70% haircut in his Teamster pension. He was stressed out. New Year's Eve 2015, that stress took his life away. Rita Lewis picks up the ball and runs with it, and she linked up with people like Senator Sherrod Brown. She even got Republican supporters. Lo and behold, here comes Joe Biden, president, elected in 2020, And the first thing out of the gate, the first thing is the American Rescue Plan. And he saluted people like Rita Lewis. So here's her story. She's going to talk about that time, how difficult that was. I mean, she was with Butch throughout this whole time. Did she know as much as Butch? No. She learned overnight. She learned overnight. And today, she's going to tell her story. And I think it's only appropriate during... Women's History Month, because she's one of the forgotten women out there that is not getting the accolades that a lot of women are getting for this month. I mean, there's a lot of women that obviously should be touted. In fact, there's 16 uh, labor federations headed by women, and we're going to talk to one of them next week, uh, Stephanie Bloomingdale. That'll be on uh, Tuesday's show. And these are stories that are very powerful stories of how they got from point A to point B. Our second guest today is Frank Banzo, and he's been on the show a couple times. He is the executive director of the Illinois Economic Policy Institute. Do check out this website, illinoisepi.org. And uh, what Frank did with his group of folks over there, they did a a study on uh, the effects of prevailing wage laws being repealed. And here's the deal. Six states repealed their prevailing wage laws between the years of 2015 and 2018. The states are Arkansas, Indiana, Kentucky, Michigan, West Virginia, and Wisconsin. The three states with full prevailing wage repeals, some of them didn't go all the way, but the three states with full repeals saw hourly wages 
decline at the same time that prevailing wage states saw an average wage growth of more than 12%. According to one of the researchers, what prevailing wage does, it kind of standardizes and stabilizes the industry of a local market. Now, when you repeal that, what you have is contractors who are also able to undercut wages and pay workers far below the training that they've developed to get these kind of jobs. Naturally, you're going to see wages go down. Also, get this, and we'll talk about this with Frank. In those states, the six states that repeal the prevailing wage, worker productivity and hours worked grew at a much slower rate than states that kept prevailing wage laws in place. Similarly, repeal states saw an increase in on-the-job fatality rates. Productivity, not as good. Fatalities go up. Safety goes down. That's essentially it. And the politicians that push this, they keep saying, oh, union rates are too high. We're going to save taxpayers money. Here's the other part of the story. If you're not making the wages you should be making, you can't keep your family afloat. So what do you do? You go on public assistance. That came up in the study as well. Illinois, epi.org for more information on that study and more. Nationally, the Economic Policy Institute does a great job on studies like this. So Frank Manzo will be our second guest right here on the show. All right, quick break. Rita Lewis, the woman behind the Butch Lewis Act, coming up next. You're listening to America's Workforce with Ed Flash Ferrans. It takes Lyuna to build North America's infrastructure. From roads and bridges to schools and skyscrapers, the men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, build the projects we depend on. From constructing the Freedom Tower on the site of the former World Trade Center to untangling Washington, D.C.'s congested interstate, Lyuna members do the work that matters. Find out what it takes to be built by Lyuna at lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. America's Workforce appreciates our sponsor, the Columbus Central Ohio Building and Construction Trades Council, who represents more than 18,000 workers from 19 affiliated local unions and district councils. There is unity and strength for workers. We are the USW. We are the USW. The The United United Steelworkers. The largest industrial union in North America. We represent 850,000 members in In the the U.S., US, Canada, Canada, and the the Caribbean. Caribbean. We work in metals, rubber, chemicals, paper, oil refining, atomic energy, and the service sector. We are steel workers, standing strong and fighting for what's right. America's Workforce is sponsored in part by Boyd Watterson Asset Management, LLC. Find out more about our investment solutions tailored to meet the needs of Taft-Hartley funds at BoydWatterson.com. to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast. AWF Union Podcast. Let's go to uh, Southern Ohio right now, specifically Westchester County, not too far from uh, the Cincinnati area. Joining us on our live line is Rita Lewis. Now, if that name sounds familiar, there's very good reason. You may recall the name Butch Lewis. Now, Butch Lewis, lifelong teamster, worked hard all of his life, and then all of a sudden, 
pension money started to disappear. We had the financial crunch of 2007, 2008, and he was a fighter all the way up to his death. And joining us on our live line, like I indicated, is his widow, Rita Lewis, who picked up the torch and ran with it to the point that those pensions are now restored. Rita Lewis, welcome to America's Workforce. How are we doing today, my union sister? Oh, thank you, brother. I'm doing very, very well and very honored and privileged that um, you've invited me to speak on your program. Thank you very much for having me. Well, you know, we're doing this for the month of March. March is Women's History Month, and uh, we're trying to salute people that have made a difference, specifically women, and you're in that category because uh, you ended up doing something you probably thought you would not be doing. Now, take me back to the time and I guess this was around 2013, when your husband found out about what was going on with the pensions, and I know you helped him out. And uh, uh, that was just the start of your journey. Can you explain what what happened back then? Sure. We had uh, heard that there were rumors that um, our pensions were going to be cut, and my husband was president of Teamsters Local 100 at that time, and his tenure had expired because he had lost the election, which turned out to be a godsend in many ways. So what he started, along with um, president, former president of the NUCPP, Mike Walden, who I'm sure that you know and you've spoken to before, well, they mm-hmm. were friends, and um, they were talking back and forth. And then Mike was starting to set up committees, And then he reached out to Butch to set up committees here locally, and they started in 2014 and 2015 lobbying, going back and forth to Washington. Well, my husband was um, traveling back and forth to Washington. I was the person, when he did come home, that I would help him with organizing um, his records and files and proofreading some of the things that he had written and just really his supporter. But I was entrenched just as much as he was because this was quite a shock to us and we knew that my husband had said, this is a war on the middle class. And he said, we're going to do everything we can to make sure that we have everything that we worked for and were promised according to our contracts and what everyone had told him all along. So he lobbied uh, um, through 2014 And then in October 2015, we received a letter that was completely changed our lives. Um, And he went to the mailbox and brought it in, and he said, I can't believe it. He said, they're going to be cutting our pensions anywhere from 40 to 70%. And I said, that can't happen. And that's when he said again, this is definitely um, a war on the middle class, and we're going to fight, he said, to get everything that we've worked for. He said, I just can't believe this is happening. So... He would get calls from being president of Teamsters Local 100 from everyone that he, you know, that knew him. My husband was the type of person that he was selfless. Everyone came before him. And um, he would sit up at night here in the family room in this comfortable chair, and he'd be sitting in the dark. And I would reach for him and find out that he wasn't in bed, and I would say, come out, find him, and I'd say, what's wrong? And he'd say, I just can't believe this is happening. He says, getting all these calls and emails, my fellow Teamsters and people I've known my whole life in this industry, they're going to be losing their homes. They don't know what they're going to do. They're beside themselves, and they're just shocked that this has happened to us. How could this happen to us? So I tried to get him to relax 
as much as he could and take his mind off of things and tell him that everything was going to be okay. Well, two months after we received that letter, I came home from work, and my husband had returned from Washington uh, December the 20th. I came home from work New Year's Eve 2015 and found him dying. And uh, the stress, and I spoke to doctors, the stress and worrying about all of this finally took its toll. My husband was a disabled working veteran, 32 knee operations. Um, He had hopes and dreams for us for our retirement. And everyone else who believed in this, that a promise is a promise, and your word is your bond, and you honored a contract, and the stress of all this, it just took too much uh, because he was such a people person that it took his life. He died of a massive stroke New Year's Eve 2015. So trying to get past the shock of that. And prior to that, Bill Lichtenwald, um, who was with Central States, came to um, Local 100. And I had a lot of questions that I wanted to ask Lichtenwald why our pensions were being cut. I peppered him with a lot of questions and not knowing Mike Walden was in the audience and I had met him personally. Well, he heard the way I peppered the questions to Lichtenwald and kind of knocked Lichtenwald off of his base. And he was shocked at some of the questions and and my assertiveness. And then that's how I got brought into this because Pension Rights Center, uh, they were going to have a hearing in Washington with the Senate Finance Committee. Mm-hmm. And they called me and they heard about my speech and my questions at Seamster's Local 100. And uh, after taking my husband's life, they asked me one question when they vetted me. Would you like to speak before the Senate Finance Committee? And I said, yes, without thinking because this pension fight took his life, and I was not going to let them take everything that we paid for. We counted on and we depended on for the rest of our lives. And that's how I got started. Then I testified before the Senate Finance Committee hearing, and uh, I became the face of the movement. Uh, Senator Cardin was there, and he thanked me, and he said, thank you, Mrs. Lewis. You put a face on this movement. We look at numbers and not faces. And after I told my story and testified before the Senate Finance Committee hearing, and I told how these cuts were going to affect my brothers and sisters in this fight, um, there was no stopping me. I was bound and determined to see this through to the very end, to honor my husband and the price he paid and everything that was not just going to be taken from me, but for all my brothers and sisters who believed in what we were promised years ago when we started into this craft. Rita, it sounds like you didn't even have time for grieving your husband's death. It seems like you hit the ground running after this. Am I getting that straight through this conversation? You know, you're absolutely right, because um, thank you for noticing that. Because after the Butch Lewis Act was passed, um, Senator Sherrod Brown, who's been a great friend through all of this, who um, I am very grateful for because it was the idea of he, him, and Mike Walden, Uh, to name this legislation, the Butch Lewis Act. He said, well, what are you going to do now? And I said, I don't know who I am now. I was Butch Lewis's wife my whole life, and we we had a great marriage, and we were a wonderful team. And then I became a widow, and I became an activist. And for eight years of my life, this is what I ate, slept, and dreamt about. Just this was constantly on my mind. So I never really did have a chance to grieve. And I told Senator Brown, now finally at the age of, what, 67, 68 at that time, that I am 
finally trying to find out who I am because I didn't know who I was. And I'm still trying to find out who I am. But I was bound and determined that I was going to stay with it to the end, no matter what, and push everything else aside till we got what was just and right and what we deserved. Rita, how long were you married to Butch? We were married 39 years, but I met him when I was 14, and he was 16. And we were together ever since. He was the first young man that I kissed, and (laughs) I ended up marrying. Waited for him through the Vietnam War, and he was my world. He was everything. So from the time I was 14 and he was 16, we were together. And I married him when I was 23, and he was 25. Aww. And you had uh, children together, too? Yes. We have a son, Christopher, and we have a daughter, uh, Michelle. Yes. And I have and three, they're... well, we, three beautiful granddaughters whose um, philosophy in life and his heart is beating in them every day because I see the way they treat people, how they reach out to people, and which lives on, and his heart is beating every day within the hearts of my children and our grandchildren. So you're a wife, a widow, and then you're turned into an activist uh, almost overnight. It's it's an amazing story. I want to talk about that journey to uh, to Washington because that that was a tough journey. I mean, you were facing some people that said, "Oh, that's just too bad." You know, these things you didn't play the stock market right. There's all other obstacles in there that you didn't overcome and this is going to be a bailout for you you heard it all you heard it all let's do that in the next segment rita lewis joining us on our live line today and this is a story that needs to be told because butch lewis fought until the day he died to make sure that his union brothers and sisters and the teamsters had the pension that they worked for that's what this is all about this is not somebody else's money Workers put aside their own money in contract negotiations for those pensions. And then all of a sudden, they disappear. We'll continue the story right after this. You're listening to America's Workforce. This is America's Workforce. More shows available at awfradio.com. It takes Lyuna to power North America with affordable energy. The men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, have the skills needed to build and maintain oil, natural gas, nuclear, solar, and wind projects that are shaping America's energy future. From new energy tech to retrofitted facilities, Lyuna members do it all. Find out what it takes to be powered by Lyuna at Lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A. The United Auto Workers are one of the largest and most diverse unions in North America, with members in virtually every sector of the economy. Learn more about this proud sponsor of our program at UAW.org. Hello from the Communication Workers of America, District 4. We are a labor union representing a vast array of workers in different industries, including the Association of Flight Attendants, Telecommunications, CWA Passenger Services, Public Health Care, and Education Workers, the IUE, CWA Industrial Division, the National Association of Broadcast Employees, the CWA News Guild, not to mention our growing digital sector, and many others. If you're interested in organizing your work group or learning more about what it means to be CWA strong, visit our website at www.cwad4.com. 
cwa.org. That's cwa.d4.org. America's Workforce Radio is sponsored in part by the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades, District Council 6, representing painters, glazers, drywall finishers, and sign and display industry workers. They remind you that belonging to a union is your right as an American. Now, back to Ed Flash Ferrance with America's Workforce. And remember, you can check us out on at least six platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, and Stitcher. And when you get an opportunity, here's what you do. Just sign up and receive our shows on a regular basis and give us a rating. We always appreciate those five-star ratings, so please keep them coming. And remember this. If you like a show, please share that show. We count all the downloads. Our sponsors want to see all those downloads so we can get even more sponsors so we can grow the show in 2023. That's what it's all about. AWFpodcast.com if you miss a show. Let's go back to our live line. Joining us from uh, southwestern Ohio today is Rita Lewis, widow of Butch Lewis. You heard about the Butch Lewis Act, which pretty much saved the central state's pension fund for the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. This was a very, very difficult battle. Rita, I want to talk about that. I mean, you you hit the ground running. You picked up the torch and you ran with it. But there was a lot of opposition, and I'm sure it it frustrated you by some of these lawmakers. And sadly, the, the lawmakers that did not want this to happen had incredibly good pensions. That really frustrates me. You know, these same lawmakers like to cut Social Security. They don't pay into Social Security. They got their own retirement fund. And that just baffles me. And it frustrates me when they do that kind of thing. But how many times did you go to the Hill to try to get this thing done? Because I know there were many, many hearings on this. And, you know, Congress changes every two years with the House. Uh, Some senators are for it. Some are against it. Can you reflect on that time, Rita? Yes, I testified before the Senate Finance Committee hearing in March of 2016, just two months after um, I had lost my husband. And and then in April, they had a rally uh, in front of the Capitol in April of 2016, and I spoke there uh, amongst um, so many senators and uh, congressmen who came to support us and step up for us. Um, and we had such a crowd there that at the time they were uh, renovating the Capitol, and so many had senators and Congress people had come out, and they had heard us, and they were out there on the balcony up there um, on the Capitol listening to us. But yes, it was emotional. It was eight years. It was I don't can't remember how many um, how many actual months. Uh, as far as time, I know I spent $20,000 flying back and forth to Washington to try and fight for this. I was working at the time. I used my vacation time, but it didn't matter what I spent or what I had to do because I wanted them to feel, not just hear, I wanted them through my words to be able to feel the humanity and the suffering of what was going to happen to me and my brothers and sisters um, should these cuts come into play. And um, it was frustrating. It was an emotional roller coaster that we rode for eight years. We came so close so many times when we thought um, our piece of legislation was going to be passed, and it wasn't. And I just had to stay focused and stay 
hopeful and believed that God was going to listen to our sufferings and right the wrong and make Congress see that not just what happened to us emotionally, physically, and psychologically, but what an impact this was going to have on the federal government because the cuts that they were uh, imposing on us, we would all be filing for federal assistance. We would be sitting mm-hmm. on the doorstep of the federal government for um, food stamps. And uh, it would affect our communities. Uh, it would affect volunteerism, where we have so many volunteers who were uh, seniors. Um, they were, businesses would suffer because they would have to hire replacements for us because we wouldn't have the money to travel to these places. It would affect what we contribute to our grandchildren and what we enjoy by buying them things. Some of us set up college funds. Um, I was sort of in the middle because my dad, who's passed on, had cancer. And uh, during all of this, I was looking after my dad as well, who had cancer. And I was providing uh, financial aid to my father, helping out my kids when they needed help, and them taking this away from us and cutting our pensions they would have suffered. So where Congress was busy looking at the numbers, I wanted them to see how it was going to affect us emotionally, psychologically, and physically. And it's not just um, the women who were fighting for their husbands' pensions. There were husbands fighting for their wives' pensions as well. And I just was not going to let up till I wanted them to really feel what we feel because I think they kind of lost touch. And we opened their eyes to the impact that we had because the middle class built this country. Unions built this country. And during that time of the golden era of unions in the 70s, we were making so much money. We were pumping so much money into the economy, buying homes, taking vacations, just having luxuries that we could never afford before. And uh, I just wanted to bring that to their attention. And I also wanted to bring them to bring to their attention the fact that all of the benefits that they enjoyed by um, a 40-hour work week or um, health care, sick days, all of those things, they benefited. Even though they didn't like us because we were unions, they benefited those because those were brought by the collective bargaining of a union. And when I would bring that to their attention and I would ask them, why won't you support us and support what unions mean to this country and save our pensions? I would not get an answer from them. It would be a dead silence. And I asked a gentleman one time, why won't they see me and why won't they talk to me more, especially the Republicans? And I'm not being political. I'm just telling you about the facts and what I saw in Washington. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't meet with me. And when the Butch Lewis Act was passed, not one Republican voted to pass this bill. And when they found out how much they did, they did the cost analysis of how much it was going to cost this government when we lost our pensions, then we finally got their attention. But we were relentless. We lobbied. We walked those halls of Congress, men and women. Um, we were not going to go away. We sat in congressional dining rooms. Uh, we had committees set up where every week there was a committee we formed the NUCPP, um, and we had committees up there every week lobbying, getting their attention, because that is the only way that we were going to have any kind of resolution to this situation, this nightmare that we were facing. And finally, when it was passed in 2021, when President Biden signed that into legislation, 
for us, it was um, divine intervention because it came so quickly and the restitution that there would be retroactive pay. Our pensions are guaranteed for 30 years. Um, I am just over the moon and thrilled. Um, God answered our prayers, and so did Congress. They finally woke up and they listened to our voices because I was not going to go away. I was going to make them realize, and I wanted them to hear my voice and how this was going to be not just suffering for just us, but for this country that we all love so very, very much. Rita, I often say on the show, elections matter. You get the right people in the right places in office, good things happen. And, and we're, we saw a number of good things, good policy happen under the Biden administration, especially in those first two years. Let me go back to uh, 2017 when uh, Senator Sherrod Brown named the uh, legislation after your late husband. Did he did he talk to you about doing that? Did he say, hey, can I do this? Did he did he like ask your permission to name this legislation after him? It was a complete surprise. Um, I was invited to come to Washington to do some lobbying. Mike Walden, who's the former president of NUCPP, he was working with Senator Brown to do this, to name this legislation on behalf of my husband. I had nothing, no idea whatsoever. So he said, well, would you like to come to Washington to just to see what, you know, to do some more lobbying? I said, absolutely, I have some vacation time. So all of a sudden he said, well, Senator Brown would like to meet with you. And I thought, oh, okay. So I walked into an office and I sat there with his, uh, with Gideon Bragan, who was working on the legislation, and Mike Walden and Senator Brown was there. And he said, Rita, would you like to sit down? I said, yes. And he said, we have a question we'd like to ask you. And I said, okay. He said, we would like to name, name this legislation the Butch Lewis Act. I did not know what to say. I tried to maintain my composure. I had no idea that it was coming, but... I know my husband probably would have, he was a very humble person, would have said no. But knowing what we were fighting for and knowing the obstacles that we had to hurdle with congressional members and meeting with our adversaries to persuade them to see what would happen to our nation if they took our pensions, I thought it was more than appropriate that my husband, who was such a fighter, that this would be his legacy. And to this day, I'm still honored. And um, I was just speechless. I was just speechless. Well, I thank you so much for sharing your story, your journey to make this happen, because so many people are relying on these pensions. Uh, Like what you said, millions of people altogether. You got the multi-employer pension plans, obviously. You got the Teamsters involved, the central states. I mean, we're talking a whole lot of people. And to your point, economic carnage if they did not get this done. I mean, they they really needed to get this done. And this is going to keep it solvent for at least uh, three decades going into the future here. The day that that it finally happened, were you given notice that, hey, this is actually – going to happen we're going to be done with this did, did you know about that in advance oh you know and the, and the thing is 10.1 million people's pensions are saved 10.1 million i i can't even wrap my head around that and to know that's protected um for 30 years but no i did not know i was just watching the vote on tv 
and mm-hmm. I came inside, and then um, I looked at the TV, and then Mike Walden, who was my mentor through all of this, and he educated me and enlightened me through all this, he said, are you watching it? And I said, yes, I'm watching it. And I said, oh, my God, oh, my God, it passed, it passed. When the boat came through, and I, and I was jumping up and down, I thank God. I looked up at the heavens, and I said, honey, we did it, we did it, we did it. And I cried for like three days, and um, when I think back, it's still, because it was a monumental feat. We had no idea. We were just so thankful that our pensions were going to be secured. We had no idea about the retro pay for everyone who had lost their pensions, and no idea that it was going to be guaranteed for 30 years. I mean, it it, it, it was absolutely life-changing. It was as life-changing as the day that I lost my butch. And um, and what you talk about elections matter, absolutely they matter. And if I could get one message across to everyone, when you go to that um, booth to vote or research your candidates, find out what they mm-hmm. stand for. If you've been a lifelong Democrat or Republican your whole life, put that aside. Look at the issues and see what that candidate represents. And that is who you voted for, because I've always said, I am not a Republican or a Democrat or an independent. I'm going to vote for the person who is going to best protect my way of life for the rest of my life and has the values that I believe in. No, I don't believe in every single thing that the Democratic Party stands for or the Republican Party stands for. But there's bits and pieces in there that, like with the Democrats, they promised us. And President Biden promised us, if I get elected, he said, your pensions will be saved. He was a man of honor, a man of his word, a man of principle. And I have to vote for a person who has those values. And in politics these days, you never know who is going to truly have your back and truly vote and pass legislation for what you believe in and what you're hoping in. And I have to say thanks to Senator Brown, uh, Senator Bobby Scott, um, even Speaker Pelosi. She said the same thing, Congressman Richie Neal. We will fight to have these pensions passed because they believed in our plight. They believed in who built this country and what America stands for. And uh, we only wanted, that's the only thing we ever asked for, what we worked for, what we paid for, and we were promised. Because I was raised by the adage that your word is your bond, and a promise is a promise is a promise. And President Biden, 49 days after he took office, he penned that legislation where he saved our lives, 10.1 million pensioners' lives. And how can you not respect a man and be grateful to him and everyone who worked behind it and the grassroots efforts of of so many of friends that I've made along the way. We had 65 committees um, who have supported me on my dark days when I thought I was going to give up. But the love and support of all of them and then the gratitude after the Butch Lewis Act was passed and I get letters and cards and people praying for me and thanking me for everything that I did. But I just had to write that wrong. Uh, They took my, my life, my Butch, and I was not going to let them steal his dream. Not as long gave me a breath to breathe. Not as long gave me that breath to breathe, God. And he heard our prayers. And we fought the good fight. And by God, we won it. We won it. You sure did. Rita Lewis, widow of Butch Lewis, 
author of the Butch Lewis Act, Saving the Central States Pension Fund, and much, much more, the multi-employer plans, all contained in the American Rescue Plan. Rita, thank you so much. Uh, you told us this, this is the story that needed to be told. I mean, I, I've heard testimony throughout this journey of yours, but now you put it all into a half hour here for our listeners to know and to share with other listeners. So thank you so much for what you've done for organized labor. And I know, I know just by talking to you, you ain't done yet, are you, sister? <laughs> No, I'm not. I got another fight on my hand. But if this message goes out to anyone, if you believe in something, don't discourage. Fight for it. Like I said, this was such an emotional roller coaster for us. And we came so close to so many times that we thought the legislation was going to be um, passed or put into a bill, and it wasn't. But I would also like to thank you as well because it's programs like yours that get the message out about organized labor. And hopefully I live long enough to see more unions and more pensions start to come back again because 401Ks just are not uh, a way, a means of retirement. Uh, a defined, ben- defined benefit in a pension means everything. And yes, mm-hmm. I do have another. I do have another war on my hand. I'm trying to have the WEP and the GPO repealed. So, and you know what that's all about. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. For those of you the, listening right now, if you uh, contribute to a Social Security, I know many of you do, and you also work in the public sector, you get docked. You get docked as a result of that. It's another story. We'll save that for another show. Rita, you hang in there. Thank you so much for joining us here on America's Workforce. Thank you so much, and I do appreciate your program, and thank you so much for thinking about me. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Frank Manzo is going to talk about prevailing wage, the states that repealed it, and how workers got screwed. That's coming up next on America's Workforce. This is America's Workforce. It takes LIUNA to keep America running. Over 70,000 public employees are part of LIUNA, the Laborers International Union of North America, delivering critical services such as healthcare and emergency response, as well as maintaining roads and sanitation systems. Even the National Postal Mail Handlers Union, representing over 47,000 U.S. postal workers, is affiliated with LIUNA. Find out what it takes for LIUNA to keep America running at LIUNA.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. You're listening to America's Workforce, and this upcoming segment is brought to you by the United Labor Agency. They connect people with employment, 216-666-2185. You can find them online at ulagency.org. From the Golden Gate Bridge to the St. Louis Gateway Arch, the Sears Tower, and just about every building, bridge, and structure in between, our cities and towns wouldn't be the same without iron workers. With over 3,000 contractors employing more than 130,000 highly trained iron workers and 20,000 apprentices, the Iron Workers Union stands ready and able to shape the future of our skylines. Learn more at ironworkers.org. Iron Workers, the sky's the limit. This segment of America's Workforce is brought to you by Survey and Ballot Systems. SBS has been providing unions with secure and flexible election options for over 30 years. Visit surveyandballotsystems.com to learn more. Now, Back to America's Workforce. 
Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast. AWF Union Podcast. Let's go just outside Chicago right now. And joining us on our live line is Frank Manzo. No stranger to America's workforce. He's been on a couple of times. He uh, is the executive director of the Illinois Economic Policy Institute website. Real simple, IllinoisEPI.org. You can also follow them on Twitter. It's the same uh, same name there, Illinois EPI, and they're also on Facebook. Now, the EPI is the Economic Policy Institute, and the national organization is EPI.org. And various states, like Illinois, have their Economic Policy Institutes. And here's the story. The uh, Illinois chapter decided to take a look at the repeal of prevailing wage. A number of states, six altogether, decided to repeal their prevailing wage. And we're looking at a time period of 2015 to 2018. And now the EPI has come out with a report on what happened to workers in those states when they repealed prevailing wage. Frank Manzo, welcome back to America's Workforce. I'm going to let you pick it up from there. Talk to me about this research and uh, you can get in all the details. We're going to tear it apart and kind of explain to our listeners why states should not do this kind of thing. Go ahead. Well, sure. And thank you for, for having me back. Good afternoon. Uh, yeah, the, the data show that the 2015 to 2018 wave of repeals in these six states uh, had negative consequences for construction workers, businesses, and communities. Uh, construction worker earnings and productivity fell behind Uh, On-the-job fatalities increased substantially, and reliance on government assistance programs worsened, while fewer projects were completed by local contractors. Uh, And all of this occurred without saving taxpayers any money, which was what was promised by those in favor of repeal of prevailing wage. Um, So strong negative consequences of repeal of prevailing wage in the states uh, across the country, mainly in the Midwest uh, surrounding Ohio. Um, that repealed prevailing wage. Frank, can we get into the states that uh, that went in this direction? What, what states are we talking about here? Yeah, so between 2015 and 2018, Indiana, West Virginia, Kentucky, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Arkansas each repealed their state prevailing wage laws. And the pro-repeal governors and state legislatures in these states promised that By cutting the middle-class wages and benefits of construction workers, repeal would save taxpayers money on public construction projects and help grow their state economies. Um, Of course, these turned out to be empty promises, and the data show just that. So when they they made the promise that uh, the money would would be saving, uh, savings to taxpayers, I, I understand that. I've heard that argument many, many times, and it just doesn't bear any fruit. Can you be specific on, on what happened to wages in those states during that time period? Yeah, so specifically on uh, for construction workers themselves, what we find in the data is that the data shows that repeal of prevailing wage laws uh, demonstrably eroded job quality during this historically tight labor market. So after repeal, construction worker incomes decreased uh, and, and by between somewhere between four and 13 percent. And it depended on the state. Then it depends on how you look at it, whether it's wages or or annual incomes. But anywhere from from four and 13 percent decrease 
in your construction worker earnings, uh, your health insurance coverage and benefits fell, and then on-the-job fatalities uh, increased by 14%. So, So what we find is that repeal created unnecessary hardships for blue-collar construction workers who are struggling to keep up with rising costs during this period of inflation. Now, at the same time, it's not just the workers. Repeal of prevailing wage also hurt local businesses in these states. In-state contractors, we find, lost nearly 2% of their market share, which doesn't sound like a lot, but when you run the numbers, it costs them over $1 billion in annual revenues that they lost to out-of-state contractors. So this means that, for example, in Michigan, out-of-state firms were awarded more infrastructure projects that were funded by Michigan taxpayers, right? They pay for these roads and schools in, in, their, in their state, and those projects are now going to, to you know, contractors from Florida and, and from, from other states, right? That yeah. less work for in-state contractors means less taxpayer dollars being spent in the local economy, and that is a self-inflicted wound on the economy. So they tell the taxpayers they're going to save a money, and just the opposite happens from uh, what you've gathered in your uh, in your research. Now, keep in mind uh, that time period. Again, we're looking at uh, 2015 and 2018 around the country in states that did not repeal their prevailing wage. The wages actually went up considerably. Can you can you uh, pick up on that one? Yeah, so so really what, what we're seeing across the country is a very historically tight labor market where wages are, are increasing for all workers and in particular for construction workers. There is there's increased construction activity. Uh, states are starting to reinvest in their uh, in their public infrastructure, their public works, their roads and their schools and, and, and the like. Uh, and and wages are, are increasing in states like Uh, Illinois and Ohio and and other Midwest states, Pennsylvania, that maintain or even expand their prevailing wage laws. Uh, But in states like Indiana and West Virginia, uh, less work is being awarded to local contractors and their construction workers fall behind. Um, So repeal doesn't save taxpayers money. It results in less work for, for local workers and local contractors. And worse, some of those workers, they fall behind so much that not only does it fail to save taxpayers any money, um, it fails to attract and retain skilled workers to complete this vital public infrastructure project um, on time and safely. But worse, after repeal, construction worker reliance on food stamp assistance increases. And the number we we find is that food stamp assistance increased by 2% for construction workers specifically, uh, all while worker health insurance coverage rates decreased by 2% as well, both of which imposes new burdens on taxpayers. So we're not saving taxpayers any money. And in fact, we're imposing new burdens uh, on taxpayers by repealing prevailing wage. Now let's get into uh, job safety, because I know you covered that in this study and you saw fatalities actually go up. And much of that, I, I assume, has to do with the worker training because we know, especially when it comes to the union apprenticeship programs, it's safety first. I mean, they pound that in daily. So Frank, did the research that you did kind of reflect on that part? Yes, that's exactly right. And and just to take a, a step back, you know, what prevailing wage laws do is they establish minimum wages and workforce training contributions for different types of skilled construction workers on taxpayer-funded projects 
that are based on what workers actually earn in local communities. So in, in the vast majority of states, they include this apprenticeship training investment that's made you know, by contractors on behalf of their workers. Um, usually that's, that's based on collective bargaining agreements. Um, mm-hmm. What the data shows is that prevailing wage attracts and develops skilled workers by including that apprenticeship contribution in with labor costs. And there's lots and lots of economic research that shows that apprenticeship enrollments are higher in states with prevailing wage laws. Usually it's around 8% higher. So at a time when contractors are having a hard time finding workers, prevailing wage is an effective policy at combating skilled labor shortages because it institutionalizes these workforce training investments. Now, the opposite is also is also true. When these states repeal the laws, they have a, a harder time, a more difficult time attracting and retaining and developing skilled workers. And because they don't have as skilled of a workforce, unfortunately, um, you know, what we might consider accidents, they happen more often. And maybe, in fact, they're not accidents uh, at all, right? Because the workforce is less skilled, these injuries and, and, and um, these things that can be prevented uh, are not. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. what we find is that the on-the-job injury, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, the on-the-job fatality rate had increased by 14% in the states that repealed their prevailing wage laws. Now, Frank, we're speaking with Frank Manzo, who's executive director of the Illinois Economic Policy Institute. You, you've done studies like this. I, I recall a couple times that we had you on the show, very similar in nature, uh, and they've all pretty much have gone in the direction that we're talking about today, that these prevailing wage jobs, right to work. I know you did a lot in the right to work states and similar kind of scenario, lower wages, lack of job safety, training and all that kind of stuff. I'm just wondering, I mean, there's enough data out there. Uh, Is this data getting to the people in power? I'm just wondering about that because they keep saying, oh, we got to do this. We got to save taxpayers money. Well, we got the proof in the pudding right here. Uh, They got to stop doing this kind of thing. Where does the data go when you do this kind of stuff, Frank? So it's a great question. Um, Certainly there are uh, leaders in these states that have realized that these policies, uh, both repeal of rights, uh, of repeal of prevailing wage, uh, as well as the uh, expansion of, you know, so so-called right to work, um, have failed. Right? I don't have to tell you and your listeners, but but West Virginia Governor Jim Justice is is probably the most famous example who who said that both the repeal of prevailing wage and the enactment of right to work failed to deliver as promised. Right? They ran to the mm-hmm. windows looking for all the jobs and the people that were going to come because of these two policies. And, and they didn't come, right? That was an admission that these policies were, were, were failing to deliver as promised, and it should serve as a cautionary tale for the rest of the nation. Um, similarly, in, in Indiana, uh, the assistant Republican leader in the House of Representatives, Ed Soliday, admitted that, uh, quote, we got rid of prevailing wage, and so far it hasn't saved us a penny, end quote. So there are leaders in these states who are or who are. Uh, admitting that it is, it is failing to deliver as promised. Now, are the other states uh, getting that? Um, yes, <laughs> the, the repeals have, for all intents and purposes, halted. There are still efforts to weaken prevailing wage in certain states like Montana, um, but there are states like Virginia and Colorado that have recently 
uh, implemented new prevailing wage laws or brought back prevailing wage. And then there are states that are expanding their laws. You know, Illinois is a state that has recently strengthened its law and expanded it to renewable energy projects um, through, you know, tax credits and things like that. So so that's uh, a kind of a win uh, and, and showing that some elected officials are starting to kind of get it. And I yeah. think the, you know, at a time when the United States is investing trillions of dollars in infrastructure improvements and contractors are having difficulty finding qualified workers, uh, elected officials need to know that prevailing wage laws improve the labor market competitiveness of these in-demand careers and can attract, develop, and retain experienced construction workers, and that to ensure American infrastructure is built locally by skilled construction workers. They, state lawmakers, should consider strengthening or expanding their prevailing wage laws, or if they have recently repealed, reversing their repeal of prevailing wage. Well, of those six states, and let me run them down again, that repealed their prevailing wage laws from 2015 to 2018, Indiana, West Virginia, Kentucky, Arkansas, Wisconsin, and Michigan. Now, those last two, Wisconsin and Michigan, those were politically charged states in the last 10 years, and uh, that's what happened in those states. I can't speak to Wisconsin, but I can speak to Michigan. They have a change in the legislature there, and I know they are working to get rid of right to work and probably going back to prevailing age there. So that's definitely one to watch, and we'll definitely uh, be talking about that one here on America's Workforce in shows to come. Frank, great, uh, great job today. Illinois Economic Policy Institute. It, this uh, study, it's still posted on your website, right? Yes, that is correct. It is available. Uh, one of the first things you see on our website, IllinoisEPI.org. Okay, and you can also uh, follow them on Twitter. Check them out on Facebook. Well, Frank, thank you for joining us here on America's Workforce. I'll tell you, you are welcome here anytime. When you come up with uh, studies like this, it's important that our audience knows exactly what's going on in America. All right, you take care and stay in touch, okay, brother? Yep, thank you. I really appreciate you having me back on again and uh, happy to be on uh, at any time. Thank you. And that'll be it for another edition of America's Workforce. Tomorrow we'll check in with the Columbus Central Ohio Building Trades and our first Friday with Fred, Fred Redman, Secretary-Treasurer of the AFL-CIO. Until then, all of you have a safe and wonderful day. That concludes another episode of the America's Workforce Radio Podcast. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. America's Workforce is a production of Labor Tools and BMA Media Group. Find out more information online at labortools.com.